Hey, have you heard about popcultureclassroom.org? Pop Culture Classroom inspires a love of learning, increases literacy, celebrates diversity, and builds community through the tools of popular culture and the power of self-expression. That sounds awesome. Pop Culture Classroom envisions individuals transformed by the educational power of pop culture who create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities, and they bring us Denver Pop Culture Comic Con. So... That's why you get these panels, these guests, these interviews, all of this programming that we offer through the BAC network. Other things that Pop Culture Classroom gives a shit about, quality service to kids and communities, respect, inclusiveness, and diversity, equality of opportunity, alternative approaches to education, recognizing each person's intrinsic dignity and importance, that's always good, and open communication, responsibility, and honesty. Does it sound like I'm reading that off their website? It's because I am. I want to get it right, because they deserve to get it right, and they deserve to have you go to their webpage, popcultureclassroom.org, and donate so that they can keep on trucking with their awesome mission to change the world through pop culture and literacy and education and etc. Welcome, glad you made it in. I know there's probably super long lines, so I'm hoping other people might filter in here a little bit as they get through security. Who's excited for day one of Denver Pop Culture Con? <laughs> Excellent. We're super pumped. You can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We're going to start off with some introductions. I'm Melissa Coons. I'm an author of historical fiction and a Geeky Gab podcaster, along with my wonderful business partner. I'm Thomas A. Fowler, author of Nerdy Things. I read science fiction primarily. Um, yeah, I'm also the co-host of the Geeky Gab podcast. Uh, you can find us at Booth B16 if you guys want to check us out. We're doing some convention-exclusive pricing. And we also have a free sticker for uh, Give Tony a Hug, because he's gone through some stuff. Uh, Tony Stark, Iron Tony Man. Stark. Uh -huh. He needs a hug. Um, so yeah, we've got a give Tony a hug sticker, so come see it, you can get that for free. Uh, I'm Ayla Larson, I'm a local copywriter, I work in advertising, also dabble in writing some short stories, been doing these panels now for five years, and excited to chat. She's also our most frequent guest on the Geek podcast. That's true. I'm Kyle Hirschfeld. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of credentials other than I read and watch movies a lot. So. <laughs> and he's also been a guest on the Geeky Gab podcast. This whole table. We're all Geeky Gabbers. It's great. Uh, my name is Scott Beckman. Uh, is it just, is my mic really, really loud? Yeah. You're the no. most important. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, my name is Scott Beckman. I write uh, epic high fantasy. Uh, I have six books out. You can find me at table C6 in the, in the Artist Valley. What is it called? Author Alley. Author Alley. but they didn't label it as such. It yeah. says Artist Valley. Right. Where, where all the books are. <laughs> if you find this on the cover, you're going to be close to us. So. Yeah. Right there. All right, let's get started. So, round of applause. How many of you have read a book? Yeah. Yes. Oh, we're in a good place. A movie? How many of you have seen a movie that was based on a book? Yeah. 
And if you haven't done any of those things, you're going to learn some stuff. <laughs> Get a list of what to see, maybe what not to see. We're going we're gonna to go through it. All right. So to start us off, I want to, each of the panelists, what was a great adaptation and what made that adaptation good? So not just be like, I really enjoyed the special effects. That could be part of it, but like, what, what did you enjoy about how they translated that book into a visual media? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with the book that basically made me want to write sci-fi, and that's Jurassic Park. Oh. Um, because I was, like, you know, this is where I'm going to date myself. I was 11 when it came out, and we still had a movie theaters and malls, and bookstores and malls. So I saw it in the movie theater, and then went straight to the Walden Books. Did say in malls? Yeah, in malls. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I went straight there once I found it, so it was based on book by Michael Crichton. Um, I just think they adapted it super well because they took all of the core elements and like the scientific debate. Uh, the fact that they got Michael Crichton to co-write the screenplay also helped because I guarantee you that projector room scene probably wouldn't have happened without him mm -hmm. where they're having that big moral debate. Uh, you know it's a good five six minute conversation. Um, had they just given the reins over to David Kep as the co-writer, it would have been more like Lost World, which is not a good thing. <laughs> We're going to get to that. Yeah, no, I'll have some things to say then. Um, but, you know, while I had some minor like things, like I wish Henry Wu had stuck around, um, I wish they had kind of embraced Hammond, as they did in the book, where he was actually a lot darker. He was actually kind of a villain, because the entire premise of the book was that, he wanted, that Michael Creighton wanted to explore the dark side of Walt Disney. So he was a lot less forgiving, he was a lot more obsessed with getting the park back online, even when things have gone bad, but instead, you know, when you cast that actor, you can't really make him that bad, but he's just so joyous. He like Santa. Exactly. You, know. you don't want an evil Santa. Santa. Well, he was. He was. Yeah. And he gave us dinosaurs. Very that's why people don't live in Florida. I mean, that's why everybody's so forgiving. Like, your dinosaur you know needs a couple I mean. people. It's okay, we'll be open. It'll be fine. It happens. He looks like Santa. Um, I'm going to throw it back to like literature. Um, when I was in school, I read One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, and it was one of the first books that I actually like really enjoyed and actually did read instead of just like watching the movie. But I did read that book and then I watched the movie and it's a great adaptation. Um, I think that it really maintains sort of the spirit of that book and Jack Nicholson is like amazing in it and they they changed it where like in the book the narrator it's narrated by like this huge like Native American dude who's like in the mental hospital with them and it's like your unreliable narrator but like they sort of made him like a side character which I think was like a really good choice for that movie. I was gonna go with uh, Lord of the Rings but um, you just brought up Jack Nicholson so I'm gonna throw it out to The Shining. Yes. Um, and this, this is a weird one because the movie is completely different from the book, but at the same time, like both are classics. Both have the different things that they bring to the table. Um, the movie did such a great job of just showing the sheer terror that like a murderer can bring to a poor little family. So. <laughs> um, I think mine is going to be Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Um, which, if you've read the book, you know that it's essentially the script. They did not change. Thing. In fact, a lot of the lines they changed the a same. lot. What's that? They changed a lot from the book to the movie. I don't feel like they did. When I Especially read it, it the end. Very they did change the end, and the book does a better ending. That's the 
that's for sure. Like I said, but they're I both good, like, but they're very different. I still just appreciate that, at least in my reading of it, that they're, they're super similar. Nice. What, uh, what about it made it good that's those similarities? Sorry. Uh, I mean, it's a really, I mean, honestly, just the idea. You can kind of see with, like, just reading the book, knowing that that was kind of Chuck Palahniuk's first uh, book that, that hit it big, why that was really interesting uh, to make into a film, right? And it's, uh, it's, I don't like, I suppose it's been out for a while, I can't spoil it, but uh, there's obviously a really cool twist that it does really cool things that you can pull off in a visual medium uh, as well, or better than you can do in a book. First rule, don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I would have to say Sorry. for mine, I might go a, uh, a literary classic as well, which was the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. That is one of my favorites. And I feel, I heard some others in there, yes. I mean, Colin Firth, he's great, he gets wet, it's whatever. Um, but I really love that movie because it kept the the classic lines from Jane Austen's novel. It even opens up with Mrs. Bennet and did you hear that the field was let at last? And it was great. Uh, and I just felt that the, the characterizations and the cinematography, it was so beautiful. And my mother and I watch it all the time. We just had it like on repeat and, and we just be like, oh Mr. Darcy. But <laughs> So I think it was done so well, it just captured the essence of the novel in visual form. And so one of the things that, while we're gonna be talking about this, is when looking at translating a novel into a visual medium, whenever you translate mediums, some things have to change. Because there are things that you can do in a novel format that is really difficult to do in a visual medium. For example, how many of you have read and or seen Stardust, Neil Gaiman, Stardust, yes. One of my favorite movies, I also really loved the book, but Neil Gaiman, when it was being made into a movie, he even made the comment, had I known they were ever gonna try to film this, I wouldn't have done a flying pirate ship because of all the intricate of special effects that they had to go through to make that look like a flying pirate ship while they're capturing lightning, and Neil Gaiman just felt so bad about it because it was so hard. So with that in mind, we're gonna move on to what was a bad adaptation and why didn't you like it? How many, how, how long do you have? We're gonna, we're gonna get pretty specific, but I mean, we got a whole 45 minutes, let's go. Uh, um, I'll keep the Michael Crichton train going uh, because one of the worst ones was Congo. Uh, uh. The book is awesome. It's phenomenal because like the, the apes are actually terrifying as all hell um, because they actually figure out how to um, chip away at uh, the, the stone slabs in that ancient civilization and they use it to actually cave people's heads in. So they're much more menacing, uh, much more brooding and also like the translation for Amy is a sign, you know, because like Amy the gorilla can do sign language um, but the movie guys didn't want the human to translate it so Amy does the sign, the, you know, in the book and then the uh, main male character would then say, oh, she said this. Um, but the movie producers obviously were like, well, we can't have that, there'll be too much time, people get bored. So they gave her a, a vest, pretty close to what I'm wearing, um, where like she does the sign. So it's like, Amy, rock banana, Amy, rock me on this. And it's just, it's awful, because the voice sounded like that. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like it sounded like a really bad AI. And um, 
it, like that's just scratching the surface, but the reason why is that because Jurassic Park was so successful in 93, studios were like, oh, Michael Crichton, quick, adapt it, adapt it, adapt it. And so they rushed production on it, they blew the script out, and they ruined a great cast too, because they had Bruce Campbell or Lenny. Um, there was no reason it couldn't have been an awesome like uh, sister movie to Jurassic Park, but instead it's just one that, it's fun to watch if you want to make it like a drinking game. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm gonna have to go with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, not the original, because I love Gene Wilder, and I, I think that really captured the essence and like the childlike wonder of the book. But I'm a huge Raw Dahl fan, and I don't know who was asking for another Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. No one. They decided to make another one, and it was it was terrible. It like it like twisted, and I know it's like Tim Burton, and he likes things like twisty and dark. But yeah. I, I think because he did so well like with Dumbo, ruined that that whole feel of that book to me. Like making it about like like Johnny Depp is like terrifying. He's like really <laughs> scary. Fake teeth. Like I get it later because his dad was a dentist, but I wouldn't. Yeah, like, and they added that old like dentist thing. Yeah. like to the background of it. Like I don't know. So that one to me, I'm like you. Just did poorly. <laughs> Very bad. Um, I actually have two examples for the exact same reason. Um, a recent one would be John Carter, um, the Disney adaptation. Mm. The book itself is pretty cool, but you really have to understand like the time it was written in because it's like you know it's that old South. We really like that Confederate glory day type of thing, uh, but then it just doesn't translate to a 2011 movie very well. Like. Um, we're not in Gone with the Wind anymore, guys. We don't care. Um, and then I'm in the same line of thought, uh, Dune. Um, David Lynch's Dune was just the worst. And it's because he tried to do so much, like translating exactly what the book was into the movie. So you actually had to read the book in order to understand what the heck was going on in the movie. And it just, it, it kills it for someone who doesn't understand it. And I also think it was made a little early. They've got the shields going on over them. and. Um, it's drawn on, it's it, before CGI, so it's really terrible. Like, the entire movie is just the worst. <laughs> but I love it. Uh, when I think about adaptations, this is a, 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 a bit off from uh, book to film, but I think that some of the worst adaptation movies come from video games, oh, when they try to make oh, movies out of video games. So, like, They've tried to do Hitman several times. They just reboot that over, and every time it's awful. Uh, and it's and I think that part of it, like part of it, like each of these were probably fans of these with like the books or the the previous thing before it was adapted into a film. And so I feel like you have to do some level of fan service. And so like in Hitman, both the the adaptations they changed his entire backstory, the main primary character, uh, which is one of the really cool things that they delve into into the video games. Uh, so when you like cheat the fans of it, like why are you adapting it? Why are you making it when the people that are going to be interested in seeing it are not going to like the version that you're creating? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It kind of defeats the purpose of adapting something with an existing fandom. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, I actually, this is horrible because this is my panel. And I can't think of one, because I think I repress the ones that I don't like. <laughs> like, I go see it, and I'm just like, that was awful, and it didn't exist. Are you brothers? Had time on it. The Hobbits. Oh, The Hobbit. I hate those so much. <laughs> <laughs> see, I repress it back. And it was so bad, because the most entertaining part of it 
it was at the end of the second movie and the beginning of the third movie, and really I just wanted that chunk, <laughs> and the rest of it could have been gone. And I'm not a big Bilbo fan to begin with. He annoys me. I know, but. <laughs> I was doing other things. Hey, don't forget the magic CGI boulder. Oh, oh, you're right, like all these horrible things. Which brings me to another point. So, some changes have to be made because you're translating into a visual medium. Some changes do not have to be made. Boulders exist. You don't have to CGI that, you can just roll one down. They're there. The Lost Ark did it really well. Very And they could have used the same one. Right? That boulder is still It needs a comeback. Everybody misses that boulder. So, what were some changes that had to be made for translating that you liked? We're going to start with what you liked and why did it work. So, one example that I'm going to give to kind of get thoughts rolling. Um, so, The Princess Bride. If you've read the book, it's the William Goldman, he adapted it from an even longer story, which I kind of want to find because some of his comments about what he cut out, I'm like, ah, that sounds really weird and torturous and I want to read it. Oh, does he? Well, that's beautiful. That makes it even better. Well, so you have that frame of the story as you're reading it that he's interjecting all these comments, you know, breaking the fourth rule, telling you what he did. And what they changed, because to translate that from a book form where you have the author talking to you, they put instead Fred Savage and his grandpa to have those same breaks where you get to be the one with the, oh wait, what are they gonna do? Are they gonna get out of it? So that was, I for me, a change from the mediums that I really enjoyed and thought was fun. So. Yeah, I think a really good example of uh, where you need to remove some subplots, because a lot of times with books, the subplots, you can still tell a central story in a movie because you have a lot less time, uh, is Jaws, uh, the yeah. adaptation. Because the book by Peter Benchley is obviously a little bit more in-depth. Um, one of the reasons that you find out why the mayor is so insistent on the beach staying open in the book is that uh, they were actually indebted to the mob over in New York. Um, which, it worked in the book, but obviously if they added that into the movie, it would have been a little bit, uh, it would have added a lot of time to the movie, because they would have had to explain it, going into it, etc. Also, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character ends up having an affair with Mrs. Brody, um, and because a lot more time takes place, but I think that the fact that they condensed it to a little bit more, um, I don't want to say real time, but it's a much more condensed time frame in the uh, movie of Jaws than it is in the book, so in this case, I felt like the elements that they took out of the book helped it out because it just helped tell like, the, the one story that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's my great example there. So. Yeah, I'm gonna kick it back to Raul Dahl again. I really love the film uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and that's a, that's a thin book. <laughs> There's not a lot there, it's, it's for kids. And I think that this was one of the instances where they actually added a bunch to the book, but they kept sort of like that same cleverness and like humor and tone that everybody loved about the first book. And that doesn't always work, because like
like, we've seen them try to adapt children's books, like, where the wild things are, and the cat in the hat, and they're just, like, terrible. But I think for Fantastic Mr. Fox, it really worked just because they, they knew what the fans loved about that book and about that author, and then they, like, stuck to it. And I think Wes Anderson was, like, a perfect sort of fit for that. I'd have to go with uh, The Watchmen. Um, the ending of The Watchmen in, in the, in the um, graphic novel, spoilers, um, there's this gigantic alien that just lands on, I think it's New York, um, and that would not have translated well. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the fact that they made it into a, uh, like Dr. Manhattan blew up, um, now New York's in trouble, like that's a great choice because otherwise it's too comic booky, right? Um, and then another one that I really like is Lord of the Rings. They didn't put Tom Bombadil in. Um, great choice. It's <laughs> a stupid character. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. I, know. I love it. I honestly can't think of one. I'm sitting here trying to think of an example of a change. I think I'm sort of a purist in that way. That, that like I feel like both the examples I've given so so far of like something good or something bad. Uh, my reasoning has tended to be how closely the adaptation stuck to the, the source material. Um, and yeah, I'm struggling to come up with a place where I can think of when that they did not do that, and I actually thought that that made it better. One um, might come to me. Okay, it blurted out. All right, yeah, I'll interrupt. Just interrupt, <laughs> whatever it is. It's like, got it. Uh, mine would be actually Girl Interrupted. The, uh, the book is a very, diary, that's what it is, it was her diary of her experience, and then the movie made it more dramatic, which I actually really enjoyed, because it, I mean, the stakes were always there, but it, it heightened them, it elaborated on a lot of the relationships, and it built a closer emotional connection, and really, I saw the movie first and then read the book, but I felt more emotionally connected to the characters in the film than I did reading the book, which I felt really detached from them. And so that, that was an adaptation, a change, where because of the visual medium, you could actually see what these characters were doing, while it still was very focal with Winona Ryder's perspective, you could see a little more than you could get from the journal entries of the novel. And that was a change that I really enjoyed. All right, here it is. This is, this is why it comes last, because it's gonna take up probably the rest of the conversation. <laughs> And don't worry, we're going to open it up to questions and comments here in a little bit toward the end, about the last five minutes, so you'll, you can think of yours too. What were some changes that were made that either didn't have to be made or were just bad choices, and why? Um, yeah, there's so many choices. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomfortable. You know, I, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just going to keep the Michael Crichton train going because they keep coming to my head. Um, they did an adaptation of Sphere, and that was shortly after, I think that was 98, um, and that was another one that they kind of expedited because, yeah, you know, Jurassic Park and Lost World make a bunch of money. Um, but both that and The Lost World just altered aspects of the story that were fine, and they were great, and didn't need to be altered. Um, granted, the adaptation for Sphere also had a problem that it dealt with a lot of very big philosophical ideas, that sometimes needed those Michael Crichton-esque uh, long stints where he wouldn't shut up. Um, you know, I love Crichton, but sometimes he likes to prove how much research he did. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and that's one aspect I'm thankful for in The Lost World, because there's one that's Ian Malcolm talking for about five pages. 
I'm not kidding. Like, and all they do is like break for like the kids to respond to. Like, that's interesting. And then it just goes on for another page and a half. Um, but like aspects of the lost world that they adapted that didn't need to happen because like, they had a great, like very claustrophobic, a very small cast of characters. Um, because in it, um, the guy who meets up with um, Nedry, you know, when he shows him the Barbasol, he's the villain in the Lost World book. Yeah. Because he wants to go back and actually steal the eggs, take them off and open his own park, use them for his own research purposes. But instead, they did this completely implausible situation where InGen did not go bankrupt even though they killed a bunch of people, got you know sued into uh, into oblivion, um, you, you know because in the book it was Ingen was completely gone, um, and so you had Ian Malcolm going there, and they were going through all these pieces. There were, but the whole San Diego sequence is nowhere. The only reason they did that was because David Kep, um, the guy who wrote it and also wrote Crystal Skull, so I've got a lot of issues with him. <laughs> um, so, um, but. They just added it because they wanted to have like a Godzilla-esque element with a, with a dinosaur in San Diego. And they even like phoned it in so terribly where they had like, you know, Asian guys in business suits like running and screaming. Um, it was just so poorly like executed. And the thing is they had great source material. There was zero reason for those two adaptations to be so bad. Um, but it really just boils down to get it out, get it made, let's go, because we're making money off of this Michael Crichton train. Um, so that's only why they did it, so I get why, but they didn't have to. No. So. so I'm going to jump on the Harry Potter train. Hogwarts yeah. <laughs> Express, if you will. Um, yeah, I think the, the main thing, and I know I'm not the only one because it's sort of a meme now, was Dumbledore running across the room <laughs> in the goblet. Like, Harry, did you play your game? I'm like, out of the fire. Like, oh, it still bothers me to this day. books when I was reading them. Like, Spew was, like, not a thing at all in any of the movies. And, like, they burned down the borough for no reason and had this whole, like, action scene that you didn't need. Instead, you could have spent that time, like, really diving into, like, the history of Voldemort, which I always thought was really, really interesting. And especially for people who haven't read the books, like, I had friends who just watched the movies, and they were, like, so confused. Yeah, I think that they needed to add in some of that stuff to make sure that people who don't read the books knew exactly like what the story was doing. Oh, well, I remember at one point too, like it was in the first movie, they cut out which now at this point I, I can't remember, but twelve year old me was really upset. Um, they cut out some scene and instead had this really long moment of Harry at Hogwarts in wintertime and it was snowing and he was playing with Hedwig outside, which was not in the books. I'm sure he did it. But I was just like, why would you cut out this important information that contributed to the plot, but put in that? Well, and they did that too, and um, I got two quick points. Because um, like with the borough, one of the problems with that scene too is that like, other than the fact that they lost their house, nothing changed as a consequence of that scene. Mm -hmm. It had no bearing on anything. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the big problems, is that, like, why do it then? Because it didn't change anything. Like, the characters were not different because they lost their home, and, like, no major characters died or were, like, you know, taken captive or anything. It just, it just occurred because they needed to pull the visual set piece. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they just um, wanted to add in some, like, danger, which you, yeah. you always feel anyway because it's Harry Potter. Like, yeah. He's like a child, and there's, like, a evil man coming to kill him all the time. Yeah, and then, um, He's not very good at it. No, 
it keeps trying. Perseverance. Yeah. Yeah, and then with Order of the Phoenix, it was actually one of the things that they omitted, and I don't get why, because it would have added so much more to... The devil? Uh, oh, no. The prophecy? No, not that. That's, that that's a whole other thing. Uh, but it was actually a very subtle thing in the book that actually almost brought me to tears when I read the book, and I was so mad they left it out. And it's when, during the farewell at the train station, when Sirius goes to see Harry. In the book, that continues because he goes back to his dog form, and he runs alongside the train. And Harry sees him as he's leaving. And the thing is, it's it's only like maybe a half page sequence, but it adds so much dynamic to Sirius's wanting to be with Harry, to be near him, and it adds that relationship. Because as a result, I felt like Sirius's death in the movies just didn't have the, like the punch that you that you felt in the book. I said Gary um, Oldman was gone, but oh, that yeah, was kind yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I was sobbing when I was reading yeah. the books. But sometimes they, they left out those like yeah. little emotional connections. Yeah. Because like just that shot of like Sirius in dog form running along the side of the train, just like looking up at him longingly, like you just felt that like desire for him to be near right. him and, and to love him and to be that father figure that he wasn't able to be. I had a lot of issues with Lord of the Phoenix, because they Neville, yeah. who's here? If you're gonna see him. Yeah. Oh, Matthew, not not in this room. Yeah, just though. <laughs> where one, we saw that Trelawney was an actual prophet, and she just had the curse of Cassandra from Greek mythology, which I love Greek mythology. And so they cut that all out where she was legit, and then she had this prophecy where it could have been Neville or it could have been Harry, and Voldemort made the choice, which just brings Neville's arc full circle, so when he finally takes out Nagini, it's just like, yeah, Neville! And they didn't include that at all, because what? I don't know. Okay. Um, I came prepared to talk about The Hobbit. Um, yes. That's what I was going to talk about. Let's talk about The Hobbit. I'll, I'll, I'll say, hold off, because uh, is, is it cheating to talk about TV at all? No. No, it's still an adaptation. Um, Game of Thrones. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you feel the same way I do. Um, but, I mean, they, they were so faithful, the showrunners were, for the first five seasons books, and I know that there were no more books to be faithful to after that. I, I get that, but there were clearly established rules, there were clearly established things that they followed faithfully for those first five seasons, and then all of a sudden, those rules go out the window, and characters start making these decisions that are just the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Peter Baelish was my favorite character. Yes. I love Littlefinger so, uh, I'm going to say so hard, but he turns into this just, I don't know, predatory pedophile. <laughs> it's just like, why did you do that? Why? He was the best. He's just this guy who lifts himself up to greatness and then you kill him off because you don't like him. I don't know. And it doesn't make sense that he got killed off because he's always two steps ahead of everybody. Exactly. So how did he literally not know exactly. until that second? Like it made for like yeah. a cool cinematic like scene, but it, in terms of character development, from what we know from all the past seasons, it didn't make any sense. Absolutely not. And then it, it, it's all for like sisters. Like great, right. I love sisters. Sisters are fantastic, but um, Peter Baelish was better than sisters. <laughs> um, He's just smart. I'm not going to dive into the like the ending. I don't want to spoil anything for people who are two weeks behind. But <laughs> um, 
they just completely, I'm going to say emasculated the series, in my opinion. So, yeah. All right, the hot end. Thank you. Yeah, so much. Um, and I think, and again, I think that I come back to why that stuff didn't work was because, like, adding, like, the, the love story with the, the female elf they invented and the dwarf, um, or uh, just, just so much stuff that they added was so transparent in that they wanted to make it three movies. Like, I think that that's, if you add something, like we said, like, if you guys at least could come up with examples of the times that they added stuff to film adaptations of books, and it makes it better, like it, it adds something. In that case, like it was totally unnecessary. There's no need for any of that. It doesn't add anything to the story. It just made you billions of dollars. And that, that's what makes that like just such a truly crappy decision, in my opinion. Well, it, they took the shortest book and made it three movies. But don't forget that it's out of the Silmarillion needed to be in there for some reason. I mean, just only like two chapters. They could make like a separate yeah. silver. They could. Yeah. I would watch it. I would watch I like them. They're doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. for Amazon, they're doing the second page. Yeah. I'm excited. No one wants it. See, there's so many. There's so many that just can't even. I mean, like the Weber's daughter with Dobby, same thing. They leave out so many moments between Dobby and Harry. They do. That make talking about Dobby and the Harry Potter movies and how it was more built up in the books and then they kind of just dropped it and it made other characters do things and then when he died you're just kind of like all right the weird little skinny thing is dead. between Gale and Katniss, which makes it confusing. Um, but what I'm seeing here, though, is I'm seeing a pattern that a lot of them that tend to be disappointing were not all, but um, I'm Italian and I talk with my hands a lot. Um, it's the mustache. <laughs> it's the mustache. It's a little extra flair. It's a lot of young adult adaptations. And one thing that I've noticed is that as the it's because they became these massive franchises and in an effort for the studios to milk whatever they could out of these franchises, that's when they started making a lot of changes that didn't need to be made, sacrificing character development over effects. And would you guys agree to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this great trend now where books are becoming TV shows instead of movies. And I think for uh, a lot it of opens times, out. it gives you yes. more of an opportunity to build like that character mm -hmm. development. Like, uh, Series of Unfortunate Events, that was like 
bad movie. I like Jim Carrey, but like they just crammed so much in there. Yeah. Whereas I really enjoyed the TV show because they were able to like stretch it out more. So it was like three books in one in the one movie, right? And in the show, they did the entire series. Right. Three right. seasons to do. And they took their yeah. time so that they could do it uh, more justice. Well, like with, uh, so Isla and I are big Outlander fans, and we love the series. And one thing I love is that each season is one of the books, and they, they do. They take the time, they translate it. There's some changes between the book to the show, but whatever they changed makes sense for the visual medium and the storytelling, because uh, sometimes it was just like, wow, that would be really boring to watch. They're just walking. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, the... First Game of Thrones seasons were really good, and I like. Can you imagine the first Game of Thrones like book being a movie? It would it would be terrible. Like I feel so like boring. it would be really boring, and you have to leave out so much and so many moments and locations and all these things. So I think like if you're able to adapt it to TV, like in those longer books, I feel like it's a better choice. So before we open it up to Q and A and comments. Um, for the ones that have been poorly translated, what do you think would have made it better? For me, um, it's just finding that key element that makes the book great. Um, that, I hate to keep harping on Lord of the Rings, but um, that's something that I think Peter Jackson did really well, mm -hmm. was he found that key element, which was you know the little guy can do big things, right? And he focused on that for three full movies, and it made sense. Um, but I'll, I'll bring it back to Dune. They didn't have a focus in that movie. Um, there was no focus. It was, oh, here's this weird, crazy universe. Enjoy. Or don't enjoy, as it were. <laughs> and he didn't find the key element, which is, you know, um, there's power in people who are marginalized. Um, so I feel like finding the key element is the most important part. And with that, he also found out ways to like adapt the book because there's certain parts of like Tolkien's writings that like actually it's not yeah. Well, the thing is like in Two Towers, like with Aomer, um, he tells everything that happened to him in Hell's Deep after it already occurred, and he's basically oh yeah, I was nuts. I was stuck in a cave and all this stuff happened. He goes on for a while. And it's like yeah, but there's no stakes because I know you're fine. Um, so I, that's where one of the, the way that they adapted it was actually very smart because he kept Aomer as an active character in Two Towers, so that way he had, you know, stakes of being um, forsaken, and also, like, you know, he had, like, he was part of Gandalf's charge at the end, it gave him a lot of emotional stakes as opposed to the book. Because, yeah, like, the way that Tolkien wrote the narrative, it was not as adaptable. And, like, while I had, like, small grievances, like, I, I was bothered that, like, Faramir was having those temptations, because, like, but because it got us to Sam's monologue um, at the end of the movie, I was like, you know what, actually, to get us there, for him to have that realization, I, I'm cool. Like, I'm good with it. Yeah. And it's because he, he still was able to find that, like, central emotional core voice that he obviously lost going to the Hobbit, where it's just... The voice was like, CGI. The well, voice was the thing CGI. You saw there, <laughs> and money. Yeah, CGI. Because the thing that stinks is you saw, like, a couple moments. Like, my favorite moment is actually at the very end when Gandalf just sits down next to Bilbo and just, like, lights up his pipe. And it's just there to, like, be there next to Bilbo because it was, like, silent, it was quiet. It's just about those two characters and their bond. It's like, see, had he captured that, the whole like trilogy would have been all right. But you know, instead, we spent all that time in Little Cape Town or whatever it was. Lake, Lake Town. Lake yeah, no, Cape Town's in South Africa. 
successful foundation would have to focus on the characters more than the science um, because the science gets really deep in that particular series um, and uh, I mean that's one of the things that I love about Asimov's work is how just expansive his knowledge is and how much he wants to teach you um, but 
I don't know, it's, it's easy to get bogged down in the science, especially when you're translating it to film. Um, so focus on the characters is what I would say. But also probably not make the Dune mistake and provide an introduction to that science and not just assume that everybody read the books and knows what it's going to be. Uh, yes, in the back. Yeah, they used the effects and like of today 
to modernize it, but they also did modernize it so far that it felt dis disassociated. It still felt like it lived within that world. The fact that the score also like was seamless. Uh, I can't remember who did the score for that, but whoever did, like they did such a great job of translating the original Blade Runner score because it's one of the more unique uh, kind of like musical scores that you're going to hear from movies and stuff too. So I, I thought it was great. Indiana Jones, no. Have you watched Crystal Skull again since? I watched it one more time. Okay. Like it's it? okay. I mean, as long as you're okay, like, like if you focus on the fact that it's a translation of '50s pop culture instead right. of '30s pop culture. You go in with zero expectations. You're okay. fine. Yeah. 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 Just forget no about aliens? the monkeys. And, it's and great. the aliens. But yeah. the aliens. I mean, that's because Area 51 was a big thing in the '50s. Check out some of our other shows like Exotic Liability, No Applause, Just the Clap, and Black Falls. We can be found at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for The BACN on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Oh, yeah.